Be pleased to remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 14 to 25. Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded, and the makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord... All the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts 16. We'll read verses 16 to the end of the chapter. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. 
They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. But when it was day... The magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Amen. You may be seated. There are a lot of words in the Christian vocabulary that people throw around and everybody kind of acts like everybody just knows what those words mean. Uh, But I'm not sure that everybody does know. And and I'm not just talking about the kind of $10 words like propitiation or predestination or something like that. It's, it's, It's actually more the simple words. It's the ordinary sounding ones. Sometimes just get used over and over until they become sort of a a jargon, lingo, Christianese. And they can tend to lose their biblical content and actually kind of pick up some content that's not from the Bible, things that people have added on until you get to the point uh, where it's like the Princess Bride, you know, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. One of those words, I think, is the word... Salvation. Salvation. If I ask you what does salvation mean, you might think, 
Everybody knows what salvation means. Come on. And I ask you, what, what does it mean? What does it mean? Do you have a full-orbed understanding of what the Bible really says that we're saved from? Uh, of how we're saved? And who does the saving? And what that all really means. Well, salvation is a key term here in Acts chapter 16. Um, And so this passage gives us an opportunity to see salvation not just explained for us, but actually illustrated in the lives of the characters, uh, showing us in several different ways what all salvation really means. So let's break it down into three parts. First, salvation from the power of evil, verses 16 to 24. Second, salvation from bondage and death, verses 25 to 34. And then third, salvation from condemnation and shame, verses 35 to 40. So salvation from the power of evil, salvation from bondage and death, and salvation from condemnation and shame. Um, In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As Paul and Silas continue their pioneering missionary journey here in Philippi, um, they're trying to bring the good news about Jesus to the whole city, which is part of a whole empire that is subject to the power of the evil one, the kingdom of Satan. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are on the bleeding edge here of the advancing message of the resurrection of Christ, uh, that shockwave with its epicenter at Pentecost is rippling outward. And now it has reached as far as what Luke called the leading city of Macedonia, a colony of Rome. So what is Satan's counter-move going to be? What is his gambit in response? As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Where it says the spirit of divination... Uh, The Greek word there Luke uses is uh, actually a little bit more specific. Um, He he calls it a a python or pythia spirit. And if you were with us for the summer Sunday school class, uh, that video series went into a lot of detail on the historical background here. For now, just suffice it to say that the pythia in the Greek world was the priestess of, um, of Apollo at Delphi. Uh, She was called the Pythia because in Greek mythology, Apollo had supposedly killed this great snake and buried it at Delphi, and it was supposed to be the vapors from that rotting snake that were coming up out of the ground that would uh, send the priestess of Delphi into a trance where she could communicate prophecies from Apollo to people who came there um, asking for advice. And apparently the handlers of this slave girl were marketing her as having similar kinds of powers, as though she too could give people messages from the gods. 
And only now you can get them without having to go all the way to Delphi. That's how, how convenient. You get them right here in Philippi. Well, verse 17 says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And at first you might think, well, that's kind of weird. She's telling the truth. Why is a demon telling the truth here? And one explanation is to say, well, maybe it's kind of like reverse psychology. So if the, if the demon says it first, then maybe it will kind of trivialize the message. Maybe people won't take it seriously or something like that. That could be, but I, I think there's a better perspective on this um, that some writers share. Um, remember, whenever an experience of the Christians in Acts is very similar to something that happens with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, we should pay attention because Luke often makes connections between the Gospel and the Book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, they're telling one story, and there are many parallels between Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry. In particular, here we should be thinking about Luke chapter 4. And there was a man in Luke 4 who had the spirit of an unclean demon who comes to Jesus and he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in fact, later in that same chapter, it says there were actually uh, uh, demons also came out of many crying, you are the Son of God. But, Luke says, Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak Why? Because they knew that he was the Christ. It's very odd. They knew that he was the Christ, but Jesus doesn't want want those demons to proclaim that. Um, This is very early on in Jesus' ministry. And what's going on is Jesus knew that when people heard, you are the Son of God, they were going to interpret that through their existing kind of grid for looking at life. They were going to fill that title with all kinds of content that came from the false expectations of Judaism from that time of what the Messiah was supposed to be like when he came. And Jesus wanted to take a different approach. He wanted to teach people. He wanted to teach them what the kingdom of God is really like, what it's really all about, so that then later when he revealed himself to them as the king of that kingdom, they would have a clearer understanding of what he was all about and his mission. And what the demons were doing is they were short-circuiting that plan. They were giving people the right jargon, the right lingo, but without the right content or meaning. Formally correct, but actually deceptive. Now Paul and Silas are not in a Jewish environment anymore, so it's not the problem of of the the first century Judaism that uh, is in play here. But, you know, the people in Philippi had their own set of assumptions. They had their own grid for hearing this vocabulary about the Most High God and the way of salvation. The culture of Philippi, which was Roman culture, was what we call pluralistic Pluralism Pluralism is when a culture accepts many different religions, many different approaches to spirituality. And Sure, you might have different groups who all like to think of their particular favorite deity as the highest, as the best. You know, I like the Braves the best. That's my team. You like the Yankees. But we all like baseball, so we're all basically playing the same game, right? That's the idea behind pluralistic society. More things 
change, of course, the more things stay the same. We live right now in a world that on the surface looks very different from ancient Rome, but we still live now in an, a, an ultra, ultra pluralistic culture. You like Jesus. I like Buddha. He likes energy crystals. But we all like being spiritual. And so we're, we're all playing the same game. That's the way people think, by and large. That's the way the people of Philippi might have heard this message of the fortune teller when she said, they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, the way you hear that depends on what you think your biggest problems are. What do you think you need to be saved from? If it's poverty, well, then salvation means prosperity, means money. If it's sickness, well, then salvation means better health. If, if it's mental distress, then salvation means therapy. See, just because she said these are servants of the Most High God proclaiming to you the way of salvation doesn't mean that people were going to understand what that means. And neither will people understand that lingo now if we just keep saying the words without spelling out for people who Jesus really is, what he really is calling us to, what we really need to be saved from, and what he's really saving us for. And as it turns out, that is precisely what Christ begins to make clear in verse 18, where Paul turns and he says to this demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. This girl is experiencing firsthand the saving power of the kingdom of God. The salvation of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, delivering her from the domination of the kingdom of darkness, setting her free, no longer to be enslaved. That's part of what salvation means. It's not all that salvation means, but it is a major part of what salvation means. It is salvation from the power of evil and of the evil one. So Christ is showing the people of Philippi here that the salvation that Paul and Silas have come proclaiming is profoundly different from the salvation that maybe they thought that they needed. The Most High God Paul and Silas have come proclaiming is not just another deity to add to their pantheon or even to put at the top of their pantheon. This is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who is coming to upend the way that they think about religion altogether and to call them to an exclusive loyalty to Him alone which is something that would not have entered into their frame of reference before. See, Roman religion was plural religion. Generic American religion is plural religion. Christianity is a singular religion. It's devotion to Christ alone. Well, in verse 19, the masters of this slave girl get the message better than you might expect. They know that Paul and Silas haven't come to play the same game that the rest of the Roman world is playing. They are upsetting the board. 
trying to put something new in its place. See, as long as Christianity is content just to kind of stay in the corner and and kind of play along as one approach to spirituality among many, people are fine just to leave us alone and do our own thing. It, It is when we start to impress on people the exclusive claims of Jesus, that he alone is the Lord. Well, that's when the hammer falls as it does here on Paul and Silas, who are beaten and imprisoned with their feet in the stocks. And we shouldn't miss here the similarity between the garments being torn off, being beaten with rods, the stripping and flogging of their Lord, Jesus, who himself experienced this hostility of the world against him. Well, in God's good providence, of course, this very imprisonment of Paul and Silas actually is part of Christ's plan for continuing to reveal his salvation in the city of Philippi. Now, in another way, to open up another aspect of that salvation. Because through Jesus, we are saved not only from the power of evil, we are saved also from bondage and death. And that's the second point this morning. Psalm 146, 7 says, The Lord sets the prisoners free. That's something that God does. It's part of his character. And he has already done that uh, repeatedly in the book of Acts. Remember all the apostles being set free from prison in Acts 5. Peter in Acts chapter 12. Well, now again, Christ supernaturally shakes this prison with an earthquake. He breaks Paul and Silas's bonds. And why does he do that? He is doing it to demonstrate, to illustrate the kind of salvation that this good news message is talking about. It's, it is not a helping hand to nudge, basically, good people on the way to becoming the best version of themselves. That's the kind of salvation contemporary Western Americans are looking for. Just a little, little help to become a better you. No, salvation is the sovereign breaking in of the power of God to bring release and freedom where there was only captivity and helplessness before. See, what Christ did spiritually for the slave girl, he now does again uh, physically for Paul and Silas in their release from prison now here's the catch. What, what means release and rescue for Paul and Silas means something very, very different for the jailer. For the jailer, it means disgrace and death. It's not interesting. When he asks Paul and Silas um, in this very crucial scene, what must I do to be saved? We can't read that out of context. We got, we, sometimes we take that out of context um, and kind of idealize it. But when he asked that question, do you think that this jailer had in mind, Paul and Silas, how can I get to heaven when I die? How can I keep from going to hell? No, that's not what's on his mind. He's not thinking in those terms. He hasn't been taught those kinds of Christian concepts. What has happened, though, is he has just come face to face with two terrifying things. One of them is the great earthquake where the very foundations of the prison were shaken. And to this man, 
An earthquake would likely have had a spiritual significance. Someone with a capital S is angry. He's felt the earth move under his feet, and he doesn't understand exactly who, he doesn't understand exactly why, but he knows he needs to be saved from death at the hands of this one who is, it seems, coming in judgment, whoever it is who has done this. What must I do to be saved? He also knows that his life is now in danger because of his duty as a soldier. If the prisoners escaped, his life could be forfeit because he was responsible to guard them. And that also drives him to his knees before these servants of the Most High God. Maybe he'd heard that slave girl's announcement. Maybe he'd heard about how these men proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And perhaps he knows about the divine power that worked through them when that spirit was forced to leave that girl. And now perhaps he still doesn't know fully what exactly salvation means. But he knows that these men have the answer. And he's ready to learn. And so he asks them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, people don't have to be able to articulate everything to know that they need God to intervene in their lives, to do for them what they cannot do for themselves, to rescue them from a desperate, hopeless situation, just to say, save me. And it's in response to that heart cry of this jailer that Paul and Silas are able to cut through this man's darkness and show him a way of salvation that is surely not what he pictured. Of all the possible answers to that question, you can think of some of the ones he might have imagined. What must I do, he asked. What what sacrifice do I need to offer to appease this God who's brought this earthquake? What What ritual do I need to go through? What rules do I need to follow? These are the questions that people are still asking. These are all the ways that people think, still think that they can fix the problem. They know their lives are messed up. They know that God is not pleased with them, even if it's just sort of a vague notion, vague impression of this. And they think, if only there was something I could do. If only there was something that I could offer to God to make up for everything that's wrong. But you see, the whole idea of being saved is that it's something that you cannot do. So if, if a lifeguard is standing on the edge of the pool and sees somebody struggling in the water and says, hey, just swim to the side, you can do it, that's not a save on that lifeguard's record. Right? A save is when the person is floundering in the water and the lifeguard leaps in and does for that person what that person cannot do to themselves by rescuing them from death. And Paul's response to the jailer's question then is summed up a whole world of gospel meaning. What must you do? What could you possibly do to save yourself from this God? What could you possibly do to rescue yourself from the bondage that you are in? The chains, the stocks that are holding your soul captive. See, what you need is not a sacrifice. It's not a ritual. It's not a gift. It's not a feat of some kind. 
Paul tells him, it is faith. It is faith. You need to embrace this message that we've been proclaiming. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, died on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And that he rose from the dead and that he lives forever as the king of kings. You need to embrace that message. But beyond that, you need to embrace that person, that Jesus. That is how. That only is how you will be saved. Because only Jesus can do it. You can't do it for yourself. And not just you, either. See, he continues broadening man's understanding of salvation. Their answer is so much bigger than the question that he thought he was asking. It's not just about, this is not just about you appeasing the angry deity that you perceive behind this earthquake. It's not just about escaping the wrath of your superiors um, when they, if they find out that you failed as a jailer. This is about your entire family entering into a new community, a covenant relationship in the family of God. This jailer had no concept of this. You see how the answer is bigger than the question. And that is indeed what starts to happen immediately as this man who just hours before was in an adversarial relationship with these men. These were his prisoners. He was their jailer, putting him in the stocks. But now... What is he doing? Now he's washing their wounds. He's feeding them a meal. He and his family are listening to them explain the good news about Jesus. They're being baptized. And by the way, as a sidebar, it's significant that the whole family is baptized at this point. Um, It's true. It does not say that an infant baptism took place explicitly. But that's not the point. The point is that in principle, it is the whole household that receives the covenant sign as this man leads his family together in uniting with the people of God, entering the covenant community. So I I wouldn't say this passage proves infant baptism, but it does establish the principle of household baptism. Um, And also, probably, baptism not by immersion. It doesn't say that they went down to the river and got baptized. It doesn't say that they took some time to fill some huge containers in the house to immerse the people, and it simply says they were baptized at once. And I think that implies a a simpler mode that did not require large amounts of water like you'd need for an immersion. So um, just note that in passing, but now let's get back to the main stream of the passage. We've seen so far salvation illustrated in terms of uh, salvation from the power of evil in the case of the slave girl. Uh, We've seen it in terms of salvation from bondage and death in the case of the jailer. Finally, salvation from Christ is also salvation from condemnation and shame. Why do you think it is that Paul did not play his Roman citizen card when he was first arrested and being beaten within an inch of his life? But now he does in verse 37. Paul could have escaped the beating and the imprisonment in the first place. Why didn't he? Well, he could have done that and spared a lot of terrible suffering. But at what cost? At what cost? What, in particular, what would that have communicated to the church at Philippi, such as it was a week old or so? Well, not very old anyway. 
um, with just a few members, and thinking beyond that to the future members of that church. What does this communicate to those who might soon be gathered in, who were watching to see what is this gospel all about? Well, what it would have communicated to them as well, what really counts for you and me is just the same as for everybody else. It's that relationship with Rome. That's what is really valuable, what will really take care of you in life. I'm with you as a Christian, except if it's about to cost me something, and then I'll show my true colors. Then I will separate myself and show where my ultimate loyalty and hope lies, show that I'm just like them, that it's my Roman citizenship that I'm really counting on as my most fundamental identity that allows me to opt out of any suffering that the rest of the Christians might have to go through. And that was not the message Paul wanted to communicate to this brand new church or to the people whose souls might yet be one who were watching this unfold. But now Paul has another opportunity. An opportunity now to use his Roman citizenship for the good of the Philippian church and the gospel message. Paul is going to be leaving Philippi soon. And now he has the opportunity to set this church up to be in a much more stable position to thrive and flourish in this Roman city. What he's doing here is he is asking for a public vindication, not only for himself, but for anyone else who might in future be associated with him in the minds of the people of the city. For the officials to come down to the jail and make a public apology, to make it clear to everyone we were wrong, these men should not have been treated this way, This has the effect of publicly restoring their reputations and therefore the reputation of anybody connected with them. And I think it also illustrates a further important aspect of the gospel, another aspect of what salvation means. See, Christians are people who haven't just been given a stay of execution. Yes, you're really guilty, but I guess you don't have to die for it after all. No, salvation is something so much better than that. In Christ, God gives us the salvation that means No condemnation anymore. No more guilt. No more shame and stigma and stain from our sin. Christ washes us clean. He clothes us white robes of righteousness. And then what we have to look forward to as Christians in the end is being, as the Catechism says, openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So as Paul and Silas, in verse 40, before they leave, they encourage the brothers, this core of the brand new Philippian church. They could tell them, your name as Christians has been cleared. And not just in the eyes of the magistrates of Philippi. Your name has been cleared. You have been publicly vindicated in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done for you. Brothers and sisters, this salvation that I've just been describing to you from this passage, that's the salvation that we've received and it is also the salvation that we've been entrusted with as a message for the world around us. A full salvation, a complete salvation. Not just the way to get to heaven when you die, salvation. Christ has saved you from the power of evil. He saved you from bondage of death. 
bondage and death. He saved you from condemnation and shame. And he's given you that message of salvation to carry to people who are still under the power of evil right now. People who are right now imprisoned in sin, who are under the death penalty of the judgment of God, and who may not even fully understand their need, but many of them know, many of them can sense, I need something that I cannot do for myself. And we have the opportunity to tell them. We have the opportunity to give them Jesus, to show them in our words, not just our words, in our lives, in our families, like this jailer's family, the rich fullness of the ultimate answer to the ultimate question. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great salvation that we have in Jesus. It's not just about one thing. It's so many things, so many ways that you have rescued us in our need and helplessness and given us life and freedom, joy, release, pardon, vindication. Lord, none of these things we could do for ourselves. We owe it all to Jesus. And so we thank you for it. We love you for it. And we offer ourselves in response. Everything we are and have belongs to you. To you we owe it all. And we ask that you would help us to carry this message faithfully to a world that is still laboring under the bondage, condemnation, and oppression that Jesus can rescue them from. And Lord, may we see many sinners brought to release and rescue through that message of the gospel that is for them today as much as it was for this slave girl and this jailer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.